you know, if anybody wants a huge hack, just forget every idea that you have, find a customer subset with money to spend on solving an important problem and just try to set up as many. I mean, if you have to bribe them with lunch or something like that, then do it or a hundred bucks, but have 20 or 30 of those conversations. Do not impose any pre-existing ideas that you have on them. Don't listen to your interviews back until you're done with 30 of them, you know, and, and then just go back and try to find patterns and figure out how are they describing a problem? Where are they looking for a problem? What problem is it? How valuable is this problem, et cetera, et cetera. Follow the path. Welcome to the Add Valued Entrepreneurs Podcast, where we're on a mission to end entrepreneurial unhappiness. If you're an entrepreneur with a burning desire to change the world, this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform your life and business so that you can achieve the freedom and fulfillment you crave. This show is dedicated to entrepreneurs who want more out of their life, more meaning, more purpose, and ultimately, more happiness. You deserve it all, and it's possible. I'm your host, Robert Peterson, pastor turned life coach for business owners. I believe that success without happiness is not true success at all, but there's always hope for those who are willing to take action. Join us every week as we bring you inspiring leaders and messages that will help you on your journey towards success. Thank you for investing your time with us today. Let's get started. Today's guest is a serial founder with eight successful exits. He's an Inc. 500 founder, has been profiled in Forbes, and is a doctoral candidate in marketing with an emphasis in AI. He's a best-selling author and is a growth mentor for the top accelerator programs in Silicon Valley. Currently, Travis Steffen serves as the CEO of Growth Team, which trains and places top quality, fractional heads of growth in companies that don't have one. Robert has a conversation about business growth with Travis Steffen, who has found a passion for taking ideas to profitability and then to exit. He shares the value of building a business with a growth strategy and an exit plan. His success is translated into helping growth, create growth success for others, and he shares powerful tips for making that happen. Well, Travis, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to uh, to have this conversation and, and share your entrepreneurial journey. Happy to be here. So I typically just start each episode with our guest telling us about their entrepreneurial journey and what's led them to the impact they're making today. Let's see, I've been uh, starting, scaling, and selling technology companies in Silicon Valley and Los Angeles for the last 14 years. Um, I have been fortunate enough to have sold eight companies in that time period and uh, have been a part of, of several other uh, good outcomes as well, uh, as well as some, some not so good ones. I don't want to pretend that everything I touch is, that I touch turns to gold. That's not the case. Um, I just take more swings than most people do. So uh, through that lens, I, I did not have a business background when I started. I didn't have any sort of business education of any kind. I didn't have any mentors, grew up with with basically no money. Um, we were very, very blue collar in, in uh, small town Iowa. And uh, I, I just found that I wasn't really cut out for the normal like jobber sort of world. And when I discovered that, I, I started to try out other vocations. I got involved in professional online poker, which was great until the U.S. government 
said that can't happen in the U.S. anymore uh, on April 15th, 2011, but who's counting, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, also had mixed martial artists and uh, lived in Thailand for a little while and fought there and and came back and realized this is, you know, what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm not really contributing anything to humanity. I'm not making an impact or anything like that on the world. Um, and so I, I got started on my entrepreneurial journey little by little and then realized very quickly it was very exciting for me. Uh, it was really engaging. I actually wanted to learn things. I had kind of phoned it in in school uh, through my first master's degree, which was in exercise physiology and biomechanics, just because I wasn't ready to be done with college at that point in time. And um, found that, you know, just through entrepreneurship, through starting things, it was a really freeing discovery to realize, okay, there's there's an idea that you can have in your brain. And at some point you can take enough action that this thing can change the course of human history in some meaningful way. And I just thought that that was a really exciting idea, but there weren't a whole heck of a lot of people that looked like me that, that, um, and when I say looked like me, I, I mean, not for clean cut, uh, uh, Ivy league or anything like that. You know, I obviously, uh, um, you know, look like just any other Joe Schmo in blue collar America. And uh, so found that that um, you know, there were other entrepreneurs that had a whole bunch of tattoos and weren't necessarily perfectly well spoken all the time. And that was what I grew up around. So I just gravitated to the mentorship from those folks and um, was able to move out to Los Angeles and then up to San Francisco and um, network a lot along the way and just kind of failed and succeeded and failed and succeeded and kind of the graph went up and to the right, albeit spiky. And here we are today. Um, you know, I, I had my last exit last February and, you know, I've been just trying to help other founders win bigger ever since. Nice. So let's talk about that first business. Let's talk about that first opportunity that, that, that you created. I love, I love the, you shared the idea in a mind and bring it to fruition um, because mm -hmm. so many people don't, believe that's possible right they get an idea and then that little voice in their head says oh no that won't work oh no you can't do that oh no you've got a beard you've been to thailand you don't know anything and and so how i, I want you to share not only what you did but how'd you get past that little voice in your head that holds so many people back honestly i think i was probably too ignorant to have that little voice at that point in time i think i was <laughs> i hadn't been beaten down quite as much by life as some people are at their at the beginning of their of their journey and i had never really had a taste of what a steady regular job looked like to be completely candid because i was a collegiate athlete and in the ncaa rules at the time i don't know if it's still the case but uh prohibited student athletes from having jobs and yes. um and so I, I don't believe that's the case anymore per se, but uh, at, at this at that point in time, I just had not a whole heck of a lot of, of options. So I didn't really have much to compare it to. Um, I also found that you know, I maybe had a lot of hubris and I saw things that other people did. And I was kind of that person that would see that and think, man, I could do that. That can't be that hard. If that guy can figure it out, if that lady can figure it out, I can, I can figure it out as well. Uh, that actually ended up being the case when I saw this reality show, it was on this clothing line tap out and tap out was a big time mixed martial arts clothing brand. And I think today it's the official clothing brand of the WWE because the UFC kind of acts their relationship not too long ago, a couple of years back. But 
at the time it was the biggest clothing line in in the sport and they were incredibly successful and um, ended up selling that business eventually but in so like along the way they had a whole bunch of little mini documentaries they had their own reality show they had a production company they had all sorts of different things that they were doing and I saw some of the guys running it and I was like man these guys remind me of myself or how I see myself they were just they were fans of the sport. They believed in people. They wanted to, to support people, but they also were completely covered in tattoos and weren't necessarily the, the common avatar of what a business person was. And so I just looked at those guys. And I was like, one day I'm going to be where those guys are. So I kind of started basically almost a clone of that clothing line. And um, we at the by the end of it, we were doing equipment and we were doing apparel and uh, we would drive around to all the Midwestern uh, fights and sell out of the trunk of my car, sell out on fold out tables um, in the crowd, all sorts of different things. And just got my first taste of hustling and, and just being creative and having some grit and making some things happen. And um, fast forward many years and I actually had the, the, privilege of making friends with and going into business with one of the founders of tap out so that story came full circle and was was one of the the coolest things that i've thought you know could never happen in the early days of my journey nice and so that was your first company in the midwest and then and then what brought you to california so there were a number of companies that came after that obviously i i, I know that the the main one that brought me to California actually was a company called workoutbox.com. We were basically a platform for personal trainers to create their own online interactive fitness sites for free. And we would just basically be a marketplace for their fitness programs and so forth. We'd take a little cut um, of each sale. And we ended up running that company for five years. But in so doing, I was getting exposure to my business partners had a completely complementary skill set to mine. Um, I had been in school for that particular subject matter and trained guys for the NFL draft, trained a UFC champion, you know, those types of things. I was a professional athlete myself. So I was basically taking that knowledge and just digitizing it as much as I could. And, um, you know, we had millions of views on YouTube before that was a thing that, you know, really was something you could monetize. Um, and, you know, so we were, we basically built that that site off the backs of search engine optimization, which was a pretty new discipline at the time. And we were able to crack the code to the degree that we were number one on Google for things like exercises or workouts and wow. those types of common terms. So eventually we became the target for acquisition by a publicly traded company. But along the way, I just learned different ways of, of building apps or building websites or building businesses because I had seen the kinds of ways that my business partner would, you know, design something and send it over to a freelance engineer that we found on on you know, various websites at the time. The one we used was Elance. Today, it's called Upwork, and it was a really freeing moment because I suddenly realized I had the tools and I knew how to build things. I didn't yet know how to actually make them into successful businesses, but I knew that I could take something in my mind and make it real. And that was the the biggest and first step for me, you know, on that journey moving forward was knowing, okay, I can, like, I can learn hard things that a lot of people would pay money for. And so that was 
that that basically that business brought me out to Los Angeles. But along the way, you know, it also built me a network. I was able to build other businesses along the way at the same time. So I was multitasking quite a bit, which I would not recommend for most people. But it was something that I was I was doing and I was in my early and mid 20s. And I was able to kind of live a little bit light as a bootstrapper, bootstrapping several companies at once. You know, so I was um, I was living a, a, a very frugal lifestyle and pouring every dime that I had into these companies. And piece by piece, you know, we would start them and, and grow them a little bit and sell them. And um, over the course of time, I realized that my focus was my biggest currency and was able to get away from the multitasking. But um, I'm not sure exactly what got me to LA on the entrepreneurial side of things. It was just, I think I had seen Entourage, the show, and it's like, that looks way more fun than than Eastern Iowa. And um, that's that's what got me out here inevitably. So so when did you recognize the power of exit, the power of you know building something mm. and then and then moving on? I think a lot of entrepreneurs hold on to their business and and feel like it's the only thing they've got. The very first one that I had was I had built a, I had this idea, this was before Bitcoin, it was before Venmo. And I had this idea that what if you could send money to anybody instantly for free in a secure way where I could basically speak to you and give you a code and you could input that code into your account and it would result in a transfer between the two of us. And it was a really interesting idea. And so I played with it a little bit and we built the technology uh, again, in the same way that 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 I had with any other piece at that point, where you know we were mocking things up ourselves, shipping the 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 instructions to engineers that were offshore a lot of times, but we were so intricate in what we were asking people to do that all they had to do was follow instructions and it would get built. So that particular one forced me to exit before I knew that that was a thing just because of the fact that um, my attorneys got back to me after the after the technology was actually built and it worked I could you know send anybody money and I wasn't actually sending money I was basically sending credits um, they basically told me hey you're creating a currency here um, this does there's no legal precedent for what you're doing there's no licensure that we're aware of that will allow you to do this above board and your name is all over it. So it's going to be a huge risk for you if you want to actually make something happen with it in the same way that, you know, the, the person that invented Bitcoin had to be incredibly anonymous early on for that to even uh, exist. So through that lens, you know, I, I just basically said, okay, I can either shut down this piece of technology that actually really works or you know, I can find out if anybody wants to buy it. And I just kind of that popped into my head. I was, I, I didn't really know what the process was. And I was on a bunch of different networking groups on Facebook at the time. And I just posted to a couple of those and said, Hey, I built this piece of technology. Um, I'm told that there's a lot of financial licensure I get, I, I need to get in order to actually make this be legal or even change the product. Maybe somebody already is a FinTech professional and, wants to acquire this asset. And sure enough, somebody spoke up and we made a transaction happen not too long after that. Nice. And so obviously this forced exit opened up the door to this idea that 
you can build things to sell rather than build things for yourself. Yeah, and, and both as well. I mean, the the most successful exits that I've had, you know, we've built those companies up and you know, the the most recent one I had, I think we had about a hundred people at exit and um, you know, had eight figures of revenue recurring. And um, just, you know, as we kind of went through that process, it was very apparent though, when you raise money from venture capital or raise money from private equity, it's always assumed that you're going to eventually either sell or go public. Something has to happen within a specific horizon. That's the thesis of the people who are actually allowing you to grow at an unnatural rate. Before that, the the theory that I had was I want to build a company until I feel like I'm bored or I want to build a company until I feel like I have an idea that consumes my mind. And it was a really undisciplined approach in hindsight because there were a lot of moments in time that I should have just continued the process of, of building what I was building to a greater heights. But you know, at the time I was just, I was doing a lot of different things at once. And uh, if I saw that something had more of a ceiling on it in terms of its income potential or revenue potential than I expected when I started it, I just wanted it off my books and I wanted to start fresh with the new lessons in mind. So I just assembled a playbook over the course of 14 years that just have reused every single time. Cause every one of those exits, you get a non-compete for three to five years in that industry. So you kind of have to start fresh elsewhere. Hmm. Well, non-competes an interesting topic of, of late <laughs> with the uh, FTC stepping in saying we might, you know, eliminate non-compete clauses entirely. Yeah, what, what do you actually, well, I think um, that's more or less been the case if, if you're looking at it through a right to work perspective. The place where they actually are still and probably will remain enforceable is when you're selling a company. Um, usually non-competes are included in employment contracts, for example, where, you know, you might get a job and that employer is afraid that you're going to take their trade secrets and go elsewhere with them. But in so doing, you're also preventing that person from potential employment around an area that they have deeper subject matter expertise than another. And it's, it's really hindering their right to work and the right to go apply for jobs. So in that sense, I think non-competes should be eliminated in that area. Um, if you're selling a business, I actually think that they should exist to some degree um, because otherwise I could build up a lot of subject matter expertise, let's say in like a staffing company, for example. And let's say we're staffing, um, let's say we're staffing teachers and I have this like marketplace network of, of teachers and this large uh, complimentary business wants to buy it and I sell it to them and I turn around the next day and I use my entire network and every ounce of everything I have um, at my disposal to just clone that offering and restart it all over again. And suddenly I'm still competing with them. And like that to me feels like something that should still continue to exist. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned your ability to learn and your ability to uh, you know learn a skill, create create something, build it up, scale it. Obviously reading is, is important to you. Um, <laughs> True. Let's talk about that, this desire to, to grow and learn and read and how that's impacted your ability as an entrepreneur. I don't know if it's a compulsion that I have or if, I, I mean, I would far prefer to be one of those people that just wants to lead a simple life, Robert. I honestly, I had uh, my, my folks were that way. 
Uh, I have a lot of friends that are that way that just want to lead a simple life. They want to go to work. They want to come home and they want to just relax and do it all over again the next day. And they have no compulsion to leave some sort of massive ripple effect on the history of humanity. It's a, it's a lot more of a, a bumpy road and, and it can be high pace, high stakes, often high stress, but honestly, it's just kind of in my bones. It's in my blood. I don't know any other way to be. It's, it's kind of just who I've always been in some sense. And I don't know that there was a, a catalyst on what actually transformed me into that state of mind. It was just kind of how I was raised. Um, being able to, to dive into something that I'm interested in is, is what I was encouraged to do growing up. Um, even if it wasn't necessarily something I could monetize these days, I think though, the, um, the difference is it feels a lot more like investing, right? Er early on in life, if I was reading fiction or if I was diving into some sort of course that could teach me something cool, it was fun, you know, and it was, it was, um, if we look at Tony Shea's three, types of, of happiness and the bottom rung is, is pleasure, then comes passion, then comes purpose. It was more on the pleasure sense of things, which is a lot more fleeting. But now it, it definitely feels like with every ounce of targeted knowledge I'm able to absorb, I, I'm just a lot more likely and a lot more capable to produce greater outcomes faster in different ways that won't decay nearly as quickly. And it just is more exciting. It's almost like a real life video game where you're you're doing things and your character gets stronger and you can do more in the video game. So that's kind of how I think about it. And I just try to get as interested as I possibly can and get really curious. Um, I think it's dangerous for people to think that if you read a book, it just equals you'll make more money by, by reading that book. I usually try to read books or watch courses or, you know, um, connect with mentors in service to deepening my understanding of the specific methodology that I'm trying to create around just rapidly scaling and, and selling companies. All right. Top two books you'd recommend to an entrepreneur in, in the early stages? Early stages, I would say uh, first and foremost, the to me, the Bible on leadership right now is always extreme ownership. Um, I know Jocko has gotten super famous at this point in time, but that was the reason why that one book I thought really shifted my perception of what leadership looks like. And I remember exactly where I was mm. when I first listened to the audible, I was on a treadmill in 2015 in a basement gym of an apartment that I was living in. And it was just a, a face melting unlock of all the things that I had been doing wrong in all aspects of my life, not just in entrepreneurship. Um, I would say the other one takes a completely 180 degree approach. And I would, I would recommend Lean Customer Development by Cindy Alvarez. I'm a huge, huge proponent of this book for early stage entrepreneurs because I think the, the worst thing an early stage entrepreneur can do if they want to, I mean, the, 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 it, in my opinion, if you were to ask me what the first thing is I do when I have a new idea, I would say, I try to forget it. <laughs> I, try, I try to forget it because it's my idea. It didn't come from the customers that I'm trying to serve. 
So Cindy Alvarez mocks up a really objective framework. It's a, it's a quick read, but it's a really objective framework in doing structured customer interviews. So what I always tell entrepreneurs like early on, your idea has one job and that's to bring you to the table of entrepreneurship. Maybe, maybe a secondary one is to get you interested in an industry, but it's not supposed to be instructive in terms of what company to build. Um, it's actually supposed to just get you interested in the customers that would be buying. So you can go interview them in a way that doesn't need the witness that doesn't try to validate a pre-existing idea that you have. Instead, it's something that brings them to the table and gets them curious about what pain points people are experiencing, where they're looking for solutions, how valuable it is for them to solve those problems. And then it gives them ammo to co-create with actual customers and, because of that path, people can reach uh, product market fit or market channel fit or market model fit just a lot faster uh, than they otherwise would if they just stubbornly built their own idea, believed that they were some sort of magical visionary, um, you know, set from the entrepreneurial gods and um, just kind of stubbornly pursued things until they slowly went broke. We will be right back after this short break. Are you an entrepreneur who started their business with purpose and passion only to lose sight of it amidst the daily grind? We understand how frustrating that can be. That's why we're offering free strategy calls to help you gain clarity on the barriers holding you back from achieving your dreams. In just 30 minutes, our experienced coaches will work with you to identify obstacles and develop strategies for overcoming them. There's no commitment or pressure, just a chance to get some assistance and clarity you need. Scheduling is easy. Simply visit smilingcall.com and select a time that works for you. Let's jump on a call and build your business together. It's time for you to add value and achieve your full potential as an entrepreneur. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible, the, this, this getting an idea in your head and then, and then perfecting it before you put it out there. Um, and and getting customer feedback, getting feedback from the world about whether or not it's any good. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. I think powerful. it's, it's, it's very, it's a backwards path that a lot of people take. And I would just say, you know, if anybody wants a huge hack, just forget every idea that you have, find a customer subset with money to spend on solving an important problem. And if they have readily available contact information, that is a win-win. And just try to set up as many. I mean, if you have to bribe them with lunch or something like that, then do it or a hundred bucks, but have 20 or 30 of those conversations. Do not impose any pre-existing ideas that you have on them. Don't listen to your interviews back until you're done with 30 of them, you know, and, and then just go back and try to find patterns and figure out how are they describing a problem? Where are they looking for a problem? What problem is it? How valuable is this problem, et cetera, et cetera. Follow the path that Cindy Alvarez mocked up in lean customer development and it will reveal a faster path to success. I promise. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Cause so many get stuck in their head and then the perfectionist side tries to perfect it before they ever put it out there. And, and the truth is if you're not willing to experiment, you, you better be willing to, to ask <laughs> questions of your potential customer. So it's uh, it, that's, that's pretty powerful. All right. right so obviously scaling, you mentioned, uh, you didn't mention, 
one of the recommendations is talking about what what is the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make when they're struggling to grow their business. So I think the biggest mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make when they're trying to when they're struggling to grow their business is thinking about things through a linear path. I think from the perspective of any entrepreneur that has like made any internet searches, they're going to get retargeted by a thousand different companies that are trying to sell them the great what they say is the greatest thing since sliced bread, which is a very specific methodology. Maybe they're driving traffic in a specific way and converting traffic in a specific way into customership and through that lens, that person is teaching something that they know and they're marketing it in a way that will get them money. But in terms of positive outcomes, it's all so absurdly dependent on the various details involving any specific business, whether it's the market, the model, the channels or the product, uh, anything in between. And most companies or most entrepreneurs skip straight to tactics and they think that those tactics themselves are the strategy. They believe that, okay, well, my strategy for growing this business is just advertising on Facebook and taking all these demos and, and selling people, right? But it's a linear path that will decay and it will almost 100% of the time end up in a plateau. And that plateau usually comes before you want it to. So from a growth perspective, the best thing you can do is start with a growth model and you have to kind of start with with strategy in mind where you have to make sure that the the market the model the channel and the product fit all of them fit each other um, you're not just trying to bolt one on later most of the time people will build a product and they'll say okay well how do we market this that's way too late um, it's way too late to have that conversation the same thing is true if you're serving a market that's shrinking or a market that has been shaken up to the point where they have so many more constraints then then you think they should, or if you have a business model that doesn't economically fit the channel that you're optimizing for, all these things can completely kill a company before it starts, or at worst case, create a situation where there's just enough traction for the entrepreneur to not move on. And they then are destined to this weird life of scratching and clawing for every single cent for years. And it probably sounds familiar to a lot of people because it's a super super common problem people don't teach this because most people that are like the gurus out there they know what they used and so they think that's the way right if you look at any of these agencies that are that are teaching these tactics that are just going tactics first you know they have a vested interest in making you believe that but like they're only going to show you the case studies of the 10 or 20 percent of customers that actually have good outcomes with them the rest of them they'll churn and burn so if you don't start with a growth model that mathematically allows you to plan your business and clearly answers the question, how does this company grow? And you don't mash, match that up with a strategy and then find the tactics that fit inside of it. But at that point, you know exactly why everything exists and you know what a good fit needs to be and you know to what degree certain tactics need to perform to fit the overall model. All of those things are things that entrepreneurs should be thinking about. Otherwise, you know, the the main reason that they'll fail to grow is just because they're they're gambling without knowing they're gambling. And when I say they're gambling, they're they're saying, let's put all of our eggs into this paid traffic basket or let's put all of our eggs into this uh, B2C virality basket or this this um, like setter and closer sales pipeline 
without a strategy. Let's just try a bunch of things. And, and if something works, we'll do more of that and we'll do less of the other stuff. And it's a, it's, it's a roll of the dice. And there's just a, a much more deliberate path you can take. So the deliberate path is developing the growth model, making sure that you have established a strategy first mm -hmm. and then what marketing tactics, what marketing tools fit that growth strategy. Marketing is a piece of it. Yeah. So, um, you know, acquisition is obviously a piece of, of growth, but, you know, within the lens of growth, the foundational element is buyer retention and the leading indicator of that is engagement. So ensure, ensuring that your customers, your users are engaged in your product in the way that you think they should and the way that you're, you've hypothesized that they would be. Um, so detecting what their actual natural usage frequency of the product is um, and you know being able to have conversations with them as often as possible about why they're they're behaving the ways that they are so having a really clear touch point with them as often as possible and then beyond that how you're monetizing them is also another huge huge growth lever that often goes underutilized people will set their pricing early on and they'll just stick with it because it's uh, it's scary to change it, they're afraid that everyone is just going to cancel in droves if they're a subscription business or people just won't buy anymore because, you know, they're selling a product that other people are selling elsewhere for cheaper and they've commoditized and they don't realize it. So through that lens, like being able to view growth as a more of a holistic sense, a lot of people mistakenly think that it's marketing. It's not. Um, it's, it's actually the way the business grows is, yes, bringing more people through the front door, but it's also ensuring that more people can fit inside the building once you bring them through the front door and don't want to leave. Uh, and then once they're inside, they're paying you, you know, what, what value indicates they should. And as you increase value over the course of time, the value you're charging also increases as a result. So those things are all true and those things all need to be paid attention to. The foundational metric though is buyer retention. Um, so if you have a subscription model, that's by far the most important metric for you to to solve before you really turn the, the juice on, on your acquisition. <laughs> well, it was interesting, the price point you mentioned and, and so many of these decisions entrepreneurs are making in fear rather than intentional plan. Very true. Yeah. I mean, that's, that describes most of our lives, right? We make most <laughs> of our decisions based on fear and, and not on intentional planning. And how often do we pay the tax for that? In, in, in life, right? So, um, so yeah, at the end of the day, if we're able to create a strategic path and not think, I mean, because oftentimes the biggest changes that entrepreneurs make, they'll make out of financial desperation. And when they make those decisions, they're thinking about things through the long, the wrong lens. They're not thinking about how do we add more value to this product or how do we capture more value within the, the customer experience based on the value that we're adding. They're thinking about how can we make money now the pro there are two problems with that one i mean there are more than two problems with that but the two that come to mind are um first and foremost there are a million ways to make money right it's not instructive it's not deterministic to say how are we going to do this um so they'll just find a way that doesn't make any sense and suddenly you have this cobbled together frankenstein of a customer journey because you're just taking random swings the second one is just things that are a blatant cash grab, things that very clearly don't have value to the customer that relate to the value that they came there for. And through that lens as well, like customers can smell that a mile away. Like they're not going to buy from you because you want their money and you're 
selling them hard. They're going to buy from you because you're adding something to their life that they can take and transform into more value than they're parting with. Um, so if you look at it through that lens, all the value you're creating, I like the analogy of a treasure map um, where, you know, if you, if I, the easiest sale that I could ever make today for you is if I basically held, held up a $20 bill and I said, do you want to buy this for a dollar? <laughs> Everyone's going to say yes. Right. Um, if I instead put a degree of separation in there, and I said, actually, I'm going to hide this $20 bill somewhere in this room. You're not going to find it unless I give you this treasure map to it. And I'm going to sell this treasure map to you for a dollar. Um, and then I'm going to be right there with you every step of the way as you follow it. I'll answer questions. And, you know, I'm going to make sure that you have a lovely experience while you follow the, the dots all the way up to X marks the spot. If you can use that metaphor as a way of describing your product experience, your onboarding, like any of those types of things, it's a much easier way to retain and engage with customers because you're, it's all focused on the value you're leading them by the hands to get rather than the value you're capturing. Too often do we get people in the door as entrepreneurs at companies that we start and um, once we have the, the money from the, the prospect, we kind of just give them a completely different experience and cool. they're upset and leave. So you know, that's, that's a, that's a huge mistake. And it's going to tank every single business if, if they do that. So I think, uh, I don't know. I feel like Meta's latest little blue check with a, for a monthly payment is, is feels to me like a cash grab because <laughs> they're charging more than my identity mm -hmm. protection for <laughs> across all systems to sure. supposedly secure my identity in a better way. <laughs> yeah. It's an, it's an interesting case that one, because, um, it's if, if you're able to buy a verification, for example, if they, if they started that feature early on in the process, it would have easily failed because there's so much indoctrination over the last decade plus in what those little check marks meant. It probably will be a successful cash grab, at least for the right. next couple of years. Because of the fact there's so much buyer psychology wrapped up in that blue check mark, if people see that and they associate it with fame and credibility, it's kind of like the digital footprint of having like letters after your name and your credentials. Right. <laughs> so um, if you think about if someone has like MD after their name, suddenly you can be prescriptive in your advice and um, people will just listen to you. I mean, I, like if I were a doctor, Robert, I could basically, and you came and you had some sort of an ailment, I would basically write you a prescription. I would say, go to your pharmacy and give this to them and buy it you would walk past 20 different solutions in the aisles leading up to that pharmacy that would get you the exact same outcome. But because I had those letters after my name, because I had those credentials, you're just going to do exactly what I say. Well, right? the worst part, the worst part in my mind is when those doctors say something that's very opinionated and, and about your body and what, what's happening with your body, that your brain hears that message and acts exactly as if, what that doctor said is going to come to come to fruition and your brain aligns with whatever opinion that doctor is given um, about how your body's going to react. Oh, you're, you're going to feel terrible when you get home today after this shot, or you're, mm. you're going to die in six months. And, and people, people take that to, to heart and their mindset gravitates onto that truth because of that white suit and because of that MD. Yep. And those are the most mm. dangerous words in my mind. 
And I think people need to be freed from that authority and freed from that reality. And, and you know, you understand how powerful mindset is. You understand how powerful you know, the, the stories we tell ourselves are and helping yeah. people free themselves from that is sure. so powerful. Yeah. It would be lovely to be able to like have everyone in the world kind of take a more objective look at things that they're prescribed from any expert, whether it's a doctor or otherwise, uh, because many, many gurus out there that are seen as experts that have these cred this credibility, the people who previously were able to earn those blue check marks, um, they know what they've seen in their life. And a lot of them have had very narrow paths, very narrow paths to walk. Maybe they took a swing and hit one out of their park, hit one out of the park in their very first entrepreneurial venture. So they think that they know <laughs> the way, right? And if you haven't had several at bats and you haven't struck out a few times and you haven't, you know, hit a couple home runs along the way, uh, I know I'm using a lot of baseball uh, metaphors. And I'm not even a huge baseball fan. It's very strange. Anyway, um, <laughs> uh, I I think that it's it's dangerous to just blindly accept things uh, without getting curious. I think a lot of the smartest people I know have the strong opinions, loosely held frame. Um, I do think there's a lot of utility in having experts that we can lean on, but I also think that there is an overuse of some of that. And I think that it's going to cause a very interesting dynamic with these like for sale blue check marks, because now I think the the real interesting thing is going to be how are basic users treated versus ones that just thought it was really dumb to pay $12 a month or $14. <laughs> so, right. Well, and if it's a marketing expense, most companies just because obviously we're going to pay 12 bucks a month and get yeah. the check mark. Cause then we have, the supposed authority, you know, sure. and at what point, at what point in the next three, two, three years, does the blue check mark become meaningless because right. well, any moron can buy it. Yeah, <laughs> true. I mean, it has to inevitably happen. I don't know if right. it'll happen, you know, quickly or, or slowly or what, but, but inevitably it, it will no doubt happen that, you know, that one particular piece of status will, will lose a little steam. So Travis, what, what's been the biggest challenge for you in, in your growth as an entrepreneur? Mm. Well, I would say it's probably one that will feel similar to a lot of other entrepreneurs experiences just based on everyone that I've chatted with over the years. Almost all of us feel like we have a very similar um, approach to this one thing. And it's feeling as though you should be further along than you are based on the, the knowledge that you have and the experience that you have, um, no matter who it is, almost 100% of the time, there's, you know, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time people are like, I don't understand why I'm, I, I'm just upset or I am uh, disappointed that I'm not further along in this journey than I actually am. Because in, in our minds, we don't necessarily think about all the things that we don't know or the things that will go wrong. It's this very wonderful blueprint that pops up. The other 0.1% that I've met feel that they have no business being as successful as they are. So <laughs> it's a very interesting dichotomy. I haven't yet met anyone in the middle. Um, the people that, that are, you know, feel like they have no business being as successful as they are, are usually people who, who know very clearly I was in the right place at the right time. And I'm not really a whole heck of a lot smarter than a lot of the other entrepreneurs that I know that maybe have 1% of my wealth or something along those lines, right? Um, but it's only people that have had the earth shattering outcomes 
you know, um, and I remember hearing this specific story actually from, from Dustin Moskovitz, um, of all people. And, you know, it was, I want to say it would have been 2016, something along those lines, um, early 2016. Uh, actually it was the moment in time where the people who were still in the inner circle at Facebook, they knew what the outcome of the, of the election was going to be far before election day, just because they saw the effectiveness of, of the advertising on the platform. Uh, which was just deterministic, like the degree to which that was occurring, they knew, and most of the world did not know. Um, and so it was it was a an interesting period of time, an interesting couple conversations that we had. But I remember in that conversation, him saying, you know, I I feel that you know I've been gifted a lot of this success because I was in the right place at the right time with the right people, um, and all I can do now is just do the best that I can based on what I've learned. And you know, use the, this abundance to make the world a better place. Now, most people aren't in that position. Most people have the opposite experience. You know, if you listen to, I mean, for me, I'll, I know I'll, I listen to interviews with like Mark Zuckerberg, and I'll say, man, I feel like intellectually, you know, we're <laughs> we're closer than than I thought we were, you know, um, and. But that guy still time, wears pants. What? Oh, and and I mean, he'll if you listen to his interviews, he'll be the first one to say it. He he says like it shouldn't have been us. Like there are all these factors that should have crushed us, uh, but like it should not have been us that that came out with this specific sensation. And then by the time people paid attention, it was too late. Um, so you know, it's a long way of saying. The vast majority of entrepreneurs, especially the ones listening to this, will have the same feeling. I feel like I should be further along than I am. And I think that our ability to cope with that belief is a huge factor in what comes next for all of us. Because there are two ways that you can go. You can go up from there. Or you can go down from there. You can either wallow in that belief and, and say, okay, this is it's just not fair, right? Um, you know, I feel like I should be running a massive, super huge organization or whatever it is. Um, or you can get curious and say, what has, you know, not allowed me to develop in the way that I think that I should have and, you know, take really appropriate action. Effectively, it's growth hacking yourself in a lot of <laughs> nice. ways. All right, Travis, what do you love to do outside of building, scaling, selling? Honestly, I, I'm I'm a I, I hate to say it like this. I'm kind of a boring dude outside of business. I I give so much of myself to to what I do every day that by the end of most days I am just exhausted and I don't want to think. I don't want to do anything else. So, you know, I'll just uh, go to dinner or um, you know, a lot of people will really really poo poo or or talk crap about television and. I watch every Oscar flick every year, you know, because I get really, really inspired by it. Like, it's just a huge creative achievement, whatever one of those people have done. So I, it's my favorite form of art to appreciate. And I get really inspired every time I see things like that. Um, so like film and, and like kind of Emmy caliber television is also something that I enjoy because I can get lost in a story, turn the idea factory between my ears off for a, a short period of time. And um, also in that same way, any of my leisure activities provide that same experience, by the way. So, you know, going to an escape room, I'm thinking about something else. If I'm getting a massage, I'm not thinking about anything, right? Nice. Those, those types of things 
are the things that I really, really love. Um, some people really in their downtime maybe like to be around other entrepreneurs and talk about business more. I actually don't. I've, I'm talking about it all day long. I'm obsessed with it to the degree that it consumes the vast majority of my waking hours. So in the ones where I don't have to focus there, I purposefully won't because I know that that's a recipe for burnout for me. Nice. All right, Travis, typically we end every episode with our guests sharing their words of wisdom. So Travis, what would your words of wisdom to those entrepreneurs listening be? Get curious and definitely don't get married to your own ideas. Um, I would say follow the scientific method as often as you can. Doesn't mean just try things and frame them as experiments randomly. It means, you know, create a problem statement, create hypotheses that are meant to explain your problem statement, and then go run tests to validate or invalidate those hypotheses that are birthed from your problem statement. And if you dovetail that in with creating a, an awesome growth model, um, fantastic. You know, so all those things should be present in basically every entrepreneur's life. It's more or less, you know, what I do every day now, I help entrepreneurs, you know, build their growth models, build their growth strategy. And oftentimes are, you know, myself or other people in our organization will actually run their growth teams. Um, and, you know, so that's, that's something that I love. I mean, we work with the biggest accelerator programs in Silicon Valley. Uh, we work with a lot of different VCs uh, on doing this with their portfolio companies. And then just Growing brands that don't have a current growth team or a great leader on their growth team will come to us and, and we basically provide that. Um, so we train growth leads and we place growth leads. Um, sometimes like I'll personally act as a, a fractional growth lead in certain companies, which is always super, super fun uh, because I can just dig into somebody else's pre-existing business and just get really fascinated really quickly. Um, so anybody who's interested in growth in general, you know, you're not going to find a whole heck of a lot about us on online at this point, because there's even without a website, there's just more demand than we are able to consume. <laughs> but folks that reach out to me, um, you know, with with some details about their business, um, some some of them, sometimes we, we opt to work with. Nice. Well, Travis, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing so much wisdom and, and encouragement, I think, for growing and scaling and exiting businesses. My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode brought to you by the power of intentional decisions that lead to massive action. Those aren't just buzzwords. They're qualities that can help you take control of your life and build a successful business. To support you on this journey, we're offering you our most popular survey to help you establish a baseline. Visit enjoybizlife.com to check it out and take the first steps towards changing your life and business. We often make things more complicated than they need to be losing sight of what's truly important. This tool will help you refocus on what matters most so that you can start doing the things you've always wanted to do, like spending quality time with loved ones. And if you enjoyed this episode, please show us some love by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. But most importantly, share it with someone who needs to hear it. In our next episode, Robert has a casual conversation with author and creator David Donaldson. David has taken his experience in working in a hospital with patients on the spectrum, both verbal and nonverbal, and saw a need for affordable comfort and stimulation type toys. He created a line of dragons that not only met this need, but are the main characters and stories that represent how children and adults can deal with real life situations. <laughs>